Well, good morning again. Good to see you. Man, we got a big hole right out here. I've got to round up the strays, I guess. Everybody's out. We've got a lot of folks out of pocket today, and I'm sure that's going to continue for the next few weeks. Uh, hopefully things will settle down when it freezes up and you can't get out of town. It may solve the problem. In the meanwhile, would you join me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, yeah, I know some of you are saying, but wait a minute, weren't we uh, studying through 2 Thessalonians last time I checked? Well, yes, indeed. But uh, we got to the verse, you remember the three sixteens? I told you those verses that are so important, Second Thessalonians 3.16, where we read, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. And I wanted to take a little excursus, chase a rabbit, over today and next week dealing with the subject of peace. You'd be amazed at how many references there are to this subject. We talk a lot about grace, talk a lot about faith, love, so forth. But notice how much is spoken about peace. And we rarely, and I'm condemning myself here, rarely have I preached on this subject. So this morning I want to deal with, we sort of studied that in a general sense last week, today, this subject, the Lord of peace, making peace. Here's our text, Second Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Last week I began with the fall the indignity, the sin, the greatness, the enormity of that insult to the divine throne that happened in the Garden of Eden. You've heard me many times refer to that, and I keep stressing it and impressing you with it, because you must understand that that is our explanation for why evil is in the world. It's been a long time that men have recognized there's something wrong in this world. There's something wrong with man. 
Where did it originate? Plato and the Greek philosophers had the notion that somehow evil was bound up in the material creation itself. Their conception of God was that he was perfect, but he created another god, a demiurge, it's called demiurge, a term for a city worker, who then created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the real God had nothing to do with that, and that it was that demiurge, that demiurge, that actually created this physical world, and that's where evil comes from. And because you and I are composed of bodies that are composed of spiritual stuff, that's why we're sinful. That was his explanation. Of course, you know, the evolutionists would take a different story. They would say, well, it's about survival of the fittest. And so in order to survive, I must dominate you. Some have, like the old story, the guy's being chased by the bear. I don't have to outrun him. I just got to outrun you. I've got to exalt myself, push myself to the front. That's just the way it is in a creation governed by evolution. Well, the Bible gives us a different story, and the story is important because it explains things. And if you don't understand where the problem came from, you will never be able to grasp the solution to the problem. I um, would say E equals MC squared is one of the greatest mathematical physics solution that you will ever find in science. But there's probably not a one of you here can explain to me what the problem was. <laughs> you know the solution. Have you ever walked your way through the page after page of calculations where Einstein arrived at that solution? See, until you don't, unless you understand the problem, you will never fully appreciate the solution. The Bible's solution is also to be found in a story. That's why biblical theology, following the trail of this story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, is so important. It's the story of how, why we are as we are, and our hope of finding a solution for that problem. Now, the story that we find in the gospel is varied. You'll find it one way, you'll see it another way. For instance, it may be spoken of as an adoption. God adopted us as his children. As you know, in adoption, there's some object, objective things. That's things have to happen externally. You gotta go through the court system. You gotta have a judge rule. But once that adoption is then legal, there are some other things that go on in the heart of the child that you're trying to mold. You're trying to give the child your spirit. And when we study the Bible's explanation of this thing called adoption, it's exactly those two same things are going on. God adopted us legally. There was some legal stuff that he had to do in order to call us his, his children. And then he gives us his spirit that we might live as his children. Okay, that's one side of the story. The other story would be like a marriage. That the solution is in this picture of a marriage whereby our Savior has wed himself to his church, to us. Um, just this past week, I was dealing with this subject. It's, I remember being in Cordoba several years ago and uh, having a discussion with Dan at the breakfast table. And Jessica and Eric were about to get married. And uh, 
Anyway, there's a little girl from Usila was in there. Usila is one of the Chinanteco Indian tribes. And she was in there washing the dishes. And uh, he just spoke up. He called her name. He said, tell me, said, uh, what is the bride price? What's the going bride price in Usila these days? You see, the idea of a bride price and a dowry are sort of concepts we don't have much exposure to these days. And we sometimes confuse the two. The dowry is what the woman brings to the wedding, sort of the thing, the resources she gives to the wedding, the marriage in order to get the thing going. The bride price is what the groom has to pay, damages, so to speak, to the father of the bride for the fact that they'll no longer have her services in the home. So he has to cough up. And, and so he said, uh, what's the going bride price over in New Zealand these days? She said, three chickens. And then he said, but what if it was Jessica? And she thought a minute and she said, one pig. <laughs> so there you go, your evaluation. <laughs> That's pretty good. You get a pig. I mean, everybody else getting three chickens, you're getting a pig. Not not a bad deal. But notice that that story of what is going on, what, what happens in this marriage. Well, we get a lot of stuff. We didn't bring much to the table. Our dowry was nothing but debt. And yet our Savior comes into the picture and pays a price to be wed to us, an awful, infinite price, the laying down of his own life in order to redeem us and purchase us for himself. So you see the picture of a marriage. Or you could think of the gospel in terms of a ransom, and that language is used often in the sense that we were captured, bound, enslaved by sin, and our Savior came and paid a ransom for our soul, not to the devil, Certainly not to us, but to the offended justice of God the Father, satisfying the claims of divine law on our soul. So those are all different ways of looking at the gospel story from slightly different angles. But in each case, there's an objective side, that which God does for us, and there's a subjective side, that which God does in us. Well, that's what we want to talk about today. Another way of looking at this thing called the gospel. We're dealing with the subject of reconciliation. We'll explain that as we go. As we look at our text, since all oh, about verse 11, Paul has been explaining the nature of his ministry. That his attention and his focus is upon them. And the reason, and this is what that verse means, the love of Christ constraineth me, is that what Christ has done for Paul is that which motivates him, that which, let's use a word, compels him to do what he's doing. For the sentence of eternal death hung over his head, but now through Christ coming and dying for his soul, he is seen as having borne that penalty in his substitute. His substitute has taken his law place, died in his stead, borne the penalty of divine law that Paul and you and I might go free. And so a new creation has begun. He makes a point that we're not to judge now by the parameters of the old creation. You say, well, what does he mean by that? Well, by the race that you happen to be. There's really only one race, the race of Abraham, that's of any importance. Right? That's the only family line that matters at all is the family of Abraham. And understand, when I say that, I'm not talking about physical DNA. I'm talking about spiritual DNA. 
That's what he means. We don't judge by that old creation anymore. There's only one nation, citizenship in which that matters anymore. Oh, how proud we are of the United States, and I am too. But it is not my citizenship in this country that does me one bit of good in the sight of heaven. It is to be a citizen of that Jerusalem that is above. That's the only one that matters. It's not your looks, thank goodness. I'm looking at most of you here. It's not your money, your station, your status in life that makes one bit of difference. Those are the outward things that used to matter in the old creation. But there's a new creation and all things have passed away. All things have become new. And that bring, and, and sort of brings us down to where I want to be where I'd like to start this morning, and that's in verse 18. Notice he makes reference in verse 18, and all things are of God. Now, he ju- and you say, well, what are these all things? I, I think it is what he just referenced in the last phrase of verse 17, that God has made all things new, this new creation, and that all things that belong to that new creation that he just mentioned in verse 17, are of God. In verse 18, they come from God. Now, that makes sense. If you're going to call it a creation, it must originate with its first cause in a creator, right? And so just as the first creation originated in the will and the power of a sovereign God, so this new creation does the same. He's the mover. He's the first cause. He's the initiator, the instigator of the fact of this thing called reconciliation. See it in verse 18? All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. We're going to find that he is the author of the fact of reconciliation. He's the author of what he will later call the message of regeneration and he in the ministry of regeneration, the messenger of regeneration. It's all from God. That's what he's pointing out. Just as it was in the first creation, so it is in the new creation. Now the word for reconciliation, it's not a word we use a lot in our day, but it, uh, it is a word, catalasso, catalage, uh, that's the noun, the verb form of it. It is to restore a relationship. It's to put the pieces of a broken relationship back together. Uh, we don't use the term very often, but we do sometimes talk about it. We say, okay, here's a couple. They're having trouble in their marriage. They've separated. They're about to get a divorce. Then we say, well, a month later, what happened? Oh, they, they reconciled. What do we mean they reconciled? Well, they kissed and made up. Right? They have restored the relationship. That's the idea behind reconciliation. I was going to use Dean and Teresa here. I asked their permission to do this. Our newest members, by the way, um, have an interesting story. You need to talk to them about this. I'll give you, I'll give you the, the, the short version. And, uh, it is that they were married for 10 years and then divorced. And they were divorced for 10 years before the Lord began to work. And lo and behold, they've been married now for seven years. 
what happened? They were reconciled. That's what it means, is to restore this broken relationship. What does that practically mean? They kissed and made up. <laughs> that's right. They get along. They're back in each other's favor. And that's the idea. It is almost always found in the context with the notion of making peace. Sometimes the literal meaning of words, uh, just to restore someone to another person's favor. Yeah, that's what the word literally means. But when we see it in these contexts, it's almost always in conjunction with making peace. That's what reconciliation is. And here we are being faced with the fact that God has restored this relationship which was lost in the fall. That's why that's important. You don't know how to appreciate what you have till you understand what you lost. And we talked about that at length last time. We fell into his disfavor under God's wrath, under God's judgment. Yet now through Christ we are restored. We're back in his favor. It differs from the idea of justification. Justification by faith is that one time, that one point where the judge declares you and I not guilty. It's like we it's a courtroom, a forensic statement. I'm standing before the judge. And when I am justified, God declares me not guilty. The judge has ruled. He has spoken. That's a wonderful doctrine, but it's not the whole story of salvation. Reconciliation is a much broader term. Because, you see, once you've been declared by the judge not guilty, you leave. he dismisses the court. You go your way. He goes his. You're really not expecting to go have supper with the judge that night. Right? You're not expecting him to be your BFF, whatever that means, best friend forever. Buddy, buddy, I'm going to hang out with the judge now. No, reconciliation is simply that legal declaration of your innocence. And that's a wonderful thing. That's what has to happen for all this other stuff to happen. But reconciliation is more than that. It is the restoration of the relationship with our Savior and with our Father in heaven. Well, how did he do it? In verse 19, we learn that he does it through Christ. That's the way it's explained in many places in Scripture. I mentioned last week in Acts 10, Peter, preaching in the household of Cornelius the centurion, talks about this word that God had sent to Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. We just read in our responsive reading a little earlier, having made peace through the blood of his cross. God is the instigator, the first cause of this reconciliation, but it is our Savior who is the means of this reconciliation. Or in this case, we could properly call Christ our Savior the mediator of this reconciliation. He's the go-between. He's the one that stands between the two parties to make peace. Notice in verse 19, the object of this reconciling work is here called the world. Now, before you get into the debate, well, is this the whole world, uh, every man? Is this the elect, the world of the elect? Uh, Let me just simply say that the world, as it's used here in most places in Scripture, seems to be more or less a synonym for what we would call mankind. That Christ is coming into the picture to reconcile God with 
mankind. In other words, what is in view is not how many they are, but how bad they are. Uh, D.A. Carson says that about John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He said that verse tells us how wonderful and big God's love is, not because the world was so big, but because it was so bad. This is a love that transcends the badness. It's the quality of this thing we call the world. And keep in mind, it's like saving the cheetahs. Uh, You don't have to save every cheetah to save the cheetahs. (laughs) You're saving mankind as a species. You're saving man. And so Christ has come to save mankind. Not all men are going to be saved, but Christ will save man from out of the number of all men. Well, how does that work? It involves, as verse 19 goes on to say, the non-imputation of sin. Paul deals with this at length in the book of Romans. In fact, he quotes David in Psalm 32, saying, Blessed is the man that does this and this. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He will not reckon sin. He will not count sin against the man. It's an actuarial term where you put a debt to someone's account. And he's saying the man, the blessed man, is a man to whom God refuses to impute their sin, to count their sin against him. And for a man like David, that's big stuff. That's big medicine. Because you do understand under the law of Moses, David's a dead man. He's committed two crimes, murder and adultery, both of which demand his life. And yet when Nathan the prophet came to David and stuck his bony finger in his face saying, Thou art the man, the next thing out of Nathan's mouth is, is that God says, Thou shalt not die, I have put away your sin. Oh man, how'd that happen? It's certainly going to happen by the law of Moses, that's for sure. But here is God refusing to impute these horrible sins to David. And such a man is blessed. You ever commit his sins that God refuses to put to your account? Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. Notice here, in this reconciliation, God is not counting, charging us with our sins. Now, how can he do that? Give me a moment, I'll tell you. But he is not charging our debts against us. Now, that's an amazing thing. If you'll skip down to verse 21, we see the mechanism of how that works. I realize I'm sort of skipping a verse here. But notice, here is the explanation for how it's possible and how it could possibly be just that a just judge has not counted my sin against me. How'd that happen? It's because another took my place and my sin got counted to his his account. I'm, it's charged to him and his righteousness is now counted to me. Christ is seen as a sinner standing in my stead being judged on the cross. I am seen as the innocent, spotless Lamb of God in the sight of God the Father. It's a double imputation. A blessed cross, if you will, that what I deserve, he received, and what he deserved, I received. So we cannot charge God with injustice, that somehow he's letting sin slide, sweeping it under the rug. Oh, no. 
He is demanding the full price of my sin. And yet my Savior is bearing, bearing it on Calvary's cross in my place. Oh, what a blessed ex- exchange is this double imputation. My sin counted to him. His righteousness counted to me. I, I love this stuff. I, I don't know. I was looking around while we were singing this. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Didn't like, look like anybody's having much fun proclaiming it. I'm sorry. I hate to be critical. Y'all look like you just have a big dose of persimmon juice or something. Hardly hear you sing. You ought to be singing that to the, raise the roof. This is the heart of the gospel. That's why I wanted to preach this this morning. This is the core of what the gospel is all about. It's this story of reconciliation that begins with God performed and accomplished through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that brings to me unthinkable blessing. Oh, where would I be? Without Christ. It is done. We are told in several places. Let me have you turn over to Romans 5. Here's another account of this reconciliation. Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 1. I want you to look at it just briefly and we'll skip down to verse 6 then. But look at Romans 5 verse 1. He's been dealing with justification by faith for the last two or three chapters And now he says in verse 1 of Romans 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, what did that do for us? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all. It just put you in a place of peace. It reconciled you to your divine sovereign who was angry with you, with whom you stood under his wrath. Now skip down to verse 6. Here's the wonderful side of the story. For when we were yet without strength, in other words, we were in a place of helplessness. We couldn't do anything about it. When we were in yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Is that true? It's hard to find anybody. You know, you're about to go to, you know, Chuck's fixing to get those stents. Chuck, I'll be glad to go take your place, you know. No, not me. Don't let Chuck do that. And especially if he was going to the firing squad. Much as I love Chuck, I don't love him that much. Right? I mean, be honest. Any of you take his place if he was going to the firing squad? And I would say Chuck's a good, well, you know, you may question that, but he's a good man. And that's what Paul is saying. For a righteous man, you'd be doing well to find anybody that step in his shoes when he's condemned to be executed. But look at this. Perhaps for a good man, some would dare to die, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing good about us. Much more than being now justified by his blood. You get that? Justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, through Christ. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled, You see why I'm saying this idea of reconciliation and making peace? Enmity is that feeling between enemies. The enmity of God was on us. The enmity of us was towards God. Our minds were at enmity with God. 
And yet, read that again, verse 10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The Savior who died for us now lives for us, powerfully to change our hearts. He had to do the law work. The claims of law had to be settled and satisfied. That's what justification is. But now that that's over and done with, we've been declared not guilty. And now we have a living Savior to work within our hearts to transform us, to make us anew. And then this last verse, verse 11, the last one I'll read here. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom we have now received the, if you're reading King James says atonement here, it's this same term, catalogue. We've received the reconciliation. You say, well, what's that telling us? The first thing we are told is that God was working through his son to bring to us this thing called reconciliation. This verse is telling us now, being reconciled, we work our way back through Christ to God and joy in God. Notice it is not to rejoice in Jesus. Oh, yes, we do that. But Jesus is the mediator. He's the go-between. He's the one that represents God to us in this work of reconciliation. And he's also the one who will uh, represent us to God. God reaches down to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and then we come back to God through his son, Jesus Christ. I was thinking, reading in some accounts of Roman history, how sometimes the Romans would surround a barbarian village and they would send, uh, they, they really didn't want to kill everybody in town. They wanted to make peace if they could. So they'd send one of their soldiers who goes with an offer, a message of peace that you can spare your life if you just surrender. And many times, you know what they'd do? They'd cut the head off that guy and send back the headless body to the Roman general. To say his overture had been rejected is putting it mildly. <laughs> When you cut the head off the guy you've sent to try to make peace. Do you realize that's what we did as the human race when God sent his son into this world to make peace? What did we do? We nailed him to a cross. And you would have thought that that would have ended the story right then and there. No peace. It's all over. It's lost. And yet what we see and a marvel at in the gospel is that is the mechanism, the very mechanism by which God now will make peace through the blood of the cross of his son. That's that contradiction. Newton put it so wildly with pleasing joy and uh, pleasing grief and mournful joy. My conscience now is filled that I should such a life destroy Yet live by him I killed. Oh, what a paradox. But that's the paradox of the gospel, that the slaying of the Son of God. Remember the story of the vineyard workers. Here comes the Son. Let's kill him. Here's the heir. Let's kill him. And, of course, Jesus is predicting there his own death at the hands of men there in Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, that is the mechanism that 
allows for the making of peace between God and man. It's an amazing story, you see. Well, what's the result? Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the result of this is verse 20. Actually, it's the last phrase of verse 19. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The story. The mechanism. The word. You say, what word? We call it gospel. Here's yet another nickname for the gospel. It's the word of reconciliation. It's the story for how a lost sinner can be reconciled with his offended God. Notice he has given us, says Paul, and who's the us here? I believe he means far more than just the apostles. He has committed to the reconciled, you and me, this word of reconciliation. The gospel has now been entrusted to us so that, in verse 20, we then are become ambassadors for Christ. I was in RAs back in my Southern Baptist upbringing. Some of you remember those days. Royal ambassadors. This was the memory verse. We To get into RAs, you had to memorize this verse. That we are ambassadors for Christ. I had no clue what in the world that meant. But you know that an ambassador is someone who represents a king or a government, a president in our case, to a nation that is not under his rule, that is, to some other nation. In this case, what Paul is saying is that God has committed to you and I this work of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation. Remember a few weeks ago when we were having our deacon ordination, I pointed out the fact that all of us are called to be deacons in the generic sense, maybe not in an official sense, but the word deacon just means servant or a deaconess, a servantess, a female servant. We're all called to that ministry. There are some we set apart in a special way to that role, but that's everyone's role in the church. In the same sense, here we find that we've all been committed this ministry. You say, I just want to know what my ministry is. Well, here's one. It's the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? You've been made, if you are the redeemed this morning, if you're the reconciled, you have been made an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You have been given the authority to represent him towards a fallen God-hating, Christ-hating world. We remember what happened to Ambassador Stevens over there in Benghazi, right? That often happens to the ambassadors of Christ when they go before a Christ-hating world. But that is our calling. That's the ministry that has been committed to us. Well, what does that mean? We are standing, as it were, and that's the way the rest of the verse reads. It's though God was beseeching you by us. God was pleading with you through us, through my mouth, pleading with you. We're standing here, he says, in Christ's stead. That's an amazing thought, that as I stand here and preach the gospel, I'm standing here as if Christ were standing here, standing in his place. And when you share the gospel, you're standing in Christ's stead. 
Well, what are we supposed to say? Be ye reconciled to God. We are to tell them the story that God, through his son, is willing to be reconciled to you. That's why I don't think the concept of election enters into this picture at all, because God didn't tell us to go say to the elect, be ye reconciled. Number one, we don't know who they are. But our marching orders are very clear. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. And we have the warrant on the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross that he is willing to be your Savior to ever who anyone who would come to him in true faith. He will save your soul. He is the means of your reconciliation. You can come back into the favor of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's our ministry. It's what God would have us do out in this fallen world. Remember that when a mediator is involved, I, I know I've had many discussions. I was thinking about a discussion with Fred Zaspel. Well, Fred's a good friend, but we have friendly debates every now and then. And uh, in verse 18, he was saying, yeah, but what, notice the idea of reconciliation there is already done. It's already accomplished. It's the idea that, well, this must be for the elect because it's already signed, sealed, and delivered. Christ, God through Christ reconciled us. In other words, it's not the possibility of reconciliation, it's the accomplishment of reconciliation. And I said, well, that sounds awfully good till you get down here to verse 20, when what is our ministry and our message? Be ye reconciled to God. If it's already done, why why am I pleading with people who are already reconciled to God, back there in verse 18, to be reconciled to God in verse 20? You see the problem? Probably not, but think about it, okay? In other words, it's... In one sense, it's a done deal. In another sense, reconciliation is still there for you if you've not been reconciled. You say, how do you explain that? I explain it because when a mediator is involved, reconciliation is a two-stage process. You ever been a a mediator? Let me tell you, it's a dangerous place to be because usually you wind up with both parties who are already mad at them, each other, wind up getting mad at you. I've talked about trying to mediate between man and his wife, and at the end of the day, two people never agreed on one thing in their life. Both agree I'm a jerk, so maybe that's making some headway. You know, they've got some common ground, okay? But in the case of Christ, he is standing between a holy God and a fallen world, reconciling the two. How does that work? First, he had to go to a cross, and that cross work had to have been approved, accepted by his Father. The resurrection is proof that it was. It's God's own stamp of approval on the work of his Son. That half of the work's already been done. On the basis of Christ's blood being shed on the cross, God is willing to be reconciled to fallen man. Well, that means we're all going to heaven, right? Oh, no. That's just one side of the equation. There's this other side. You, the sinner, have to come to the mediator and embrace the mediator 
You've got to make peace with God through the mediator. Notice how Christ is always the focus here. He's the one in the middle. God is reconciling us to him, uh, to himself by the Son. And we are obtaining reconciliation with the Father by the Son. Both sides of those things have to happen. And you weren't even around when Christ died on the cross. Yes, that phase has already been accomplished. God is now willing to be at peace with you, a fallen sinner. But you, the fallen sinner, must be reconciled to God through the work of the Son. I hope that's clear. You've got to lay your hand of faith like the Old Testament sacrifices. You've got to lay your hand on His head, claiming Him as your substitute. And to do that, you have to bow to Him as your sovereign Lord. Our choir sang about that. We all bow down before this Savior. We have to take Him as our peace, that He is the ground of our peace. It's the way we're going to be at peace with God is through the Son. Three things, and I'll close. The universality of this call. I already talked about that, so we can skip right to number two. We're all called to be reconcilers, okay? Ambassadors for Christ. Y'all got that? Okay, we can go on number two. Note the universality of the offer. The emphasis here is not on the number, but on the quality. There are other texts that are going to deal with the number, with the fact that there is a definite people in view in the crosswork of Jesus Christ. But the emphasis here is not on the number, it's on the quality. Christ died to save sinners. That's the quality. You say, what warrant then do I have to come to Jesus if I don't know I'm the elect? Are you a sinner? That's my question. Well, guess what? Christ died for sinners. Christ Jesus, says Paul to Timothy, came into the world to do what? To save sinners. And so on that ground, you have a warrant to come to Jesus to find this thing called reconciliation with the offended God you have slandered and disobeyed. With this message of reconciliation comes this plea. And and do you see the heart cry here? I'm I'm afraid many of us, you know... We're the frozen chosen. You know, we four and no more. (laughs) You don't find Paul speaking in those terms. We plead with you in Christ's stead. We beg you. Be reconciled to God. Say, man, that's we don't talk like that. No, to our shame, we don't talk like that. Jesus talked like that. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and slayest those that are sent unto thee. How oft I would have gathered thee as a hen or chicks, and ye would not. The pleas of our Savior with a fallen city that was about to crucify. Oh, may God give us that heart that we see here. The ambassador seeks the well-being, the salvation of those to whom he goes. May God use us in that. And then finally, back to the fact that the centrality of Christ, and I thought I would close with a 
illustration. And it's out of the little book of Philemon. Um, probably you don't spend a lot of time in that little letter where Paul wrote to his friend Philemon, a fairly wealthy guy back in Colossae. We're told in that letter that the church there in Colossae met in his house. So he's sort of a well-to-do guy. The letter of Philemon deals with a runaway slave that used to belong to Philemon. His name was Onesimus. Onesimus is a Greek word that means profitable. And uh, old profitable hadn't been very profitable to Philemon. Not only, of course, you're dealing in the days of slavery. Philemon had to buy him in the first place, and now he's lost his investment. But we, reading between the lines, see that Paul mentions the fact that if he's stolen anything from you, in other words, not only did my investment ran off, run off, he ran off with some of my stuff. And under the Roman law of the day, that slave, that runaway, could either be brought back to his master or executed. The master could insist on his execution. Well, where did Onesimus run off to? Well, he ran off to Rome. And somehow, we don't know how, somehow in the providence of God, crossed paths with the Apostle Paul. And now Paul is writing this letter back to Philemon. You understand that Paul has now become the mediator between Philemon, the rich slaveholder, and the runaway, Onesimus. He says, I'm coming to you on the behalf of my son. I begot him in my bonds. In other words, he speaks of a spiritual begotting through the ministry of the gospel. And he said, I, I'm asking you, to receive him as you would receive me. In other words, when he shows up at your door, I don't want you to see him, I want you to see me. Receive him like you would me. And he went on to say that if he has robbed you, if he's taken anything of yours, I'm telling you, I, Paul, will repay it. Now, Paul's in a prison in Rome, and he has no clue if he's ever going to get out of there alive. I don't think Paul literally meant that because he adds immediately following, although you realize you do owe me your own soul. (laughs) Humanly speaking, I am the one who brought salvation into your life. So, in other words, I ought to have a pretty good credit in your eyes. So if he owes you anything... Charge it to me. Charge it against what I have. Do you see the gospel here? Because that's exactly how my Savior saves me. I know we look at this from Philemon's standpoint. I want you to put yourself in Onesimus' shoes. I am now headed back to Colossae from Rome. I'm going to face my master who I ran off and stole from, who could have me executed. When he knocks on that door, what do you suppose he's holding in his hand? I think it's this letter from Paul. In other words, you say, well, you fool, you just keep running. Why would you go back? Because this thing right here, Paul is offering to intercede for me. He says to Philemon, treat him like you would treat me. Our Savior did that for us. Standing before God the Father, treat that sinner, that hell-deserving sinner, as I deserve to be treated. Yeah, but what about his sin? What about our sin debt? We have a mediator, a Savior, who says, I'll pay it. 
whatever he owes, I'll make it right. If I'm going to show up, I got that this thing right here. What's my hope? What's my confidence? What's my trust? That I'm going to be forgiven. Well, it's not me. <laughs> it's not what I did. It's all because of Paul, the author of this letter. I'm trusting him. That's how we come to God, through Jesus Christ. I'm trusting the one who did for me what had to be done. I have no hope in myself. My confidence is in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful story you have given us. What a amazing thing that we see going on in this story we call the gospel of a love that transcends anything we know anything about. A sacrificial love. That, Father, you loved us by giving, giving up your Son. A love that saw not what we could bring or do, but saw what we so desperately needed and provided it in the person of Christ. And, Father, it's a conquering love. Father, we know many that hear this story and go on their way, their eyes closed, their hearts hearts hard. But, Father, in our case, the Spirit came inside and unlocked the door of our heart from the inside, gave us a heart to fall in love, with this lover of our soul. What a marvelous thing you have done for sinners. And oh, may we who know you, who have been reconciled, may we enter into this ministry of seeking the salvation, the reconciliation of those round about us. May we point them to Christ, the mediator, the go-between, the one who stands between, the only one who can do what we must have done. May we be faithful in that task. May we rejoice in our God, the one who authored, initiated, instigated, the first cause, the first mover, the one who got the ball rolling in eternity past, this wonderful plan that then was executed in time through your Son, Jesus Christ. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, applying these things to our heart. May joy fill our soul. May thanks, especially at this time of year, flow out of our mouth like water out of a faucet. That We cannot vocalize enough the wonderful thing our great God has done for our soul. So we thank you for this unspeakable gift. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.